We've talked a lot in the abstract recently about foreign fighters going to fight in Ukraine. Who might they be? What might motivate them? Well, my colleague Stephen Meffen has just returned from the Ukraine-Poland border, where he spoke to one. Stephen, welcome to Tiski Sour. A pleasure to have you in front of the camera for a change. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. To, to set the scene, could you sort of tell us and the audience what you got up to in your free days on, on the Polish border? Yeah, so I um, spent one day um, on the border itself at Dorohusk, um, talking to refugees both there and in Helm, the nearby town, and then taking the train from Helm with them back to Lublin, which is the nearest city. I'd been given a tip that fighters were crossing the border at Chemishil, and I'd sort of joked to the tipster, oh, maybe I could save myself a trip and just spot a likely lad at the airport. And then I spotted a likely lad at the airport. Let's go to our first clip of Jack. Here he explains what his life was like after leaving the military and why he decided to fight for Ukraine. To be honest, it was hard. Because uh, going from regimental and being everything done, sort of time frames where you had to be, where you had to go, your food supply kit, and then just being thrown into Civvy Street, it was a culture shock, to be honest. I'm still not fully proper, like I'm not still not properly a civilian, hence the reason I'm back here again, you know. Literally, I've just been in and out of silly jobs, really, since I came out. Um, nothing has, has had any meaning. It's been literally one thing after another just, just to get it through. I have a daughter. She's now coming eight. I haven't seen her since she was six and a half months old. Uh, me and her mum broke up. Um, I've recently just gotten in touch with my sister, who's sent me pictures of my daughter and stuff like that, and it's sort of hit at home. I want her future not to be held under like a knife, if you know. It's like, I, I'm here sort of, not just for my own daughter, but for all the kids out there. Like you've seen the footage of the kids in Ukraine being shelled and shot at. The destruction and the, de the death that this has brought about. I don't think in this modern day and age, we would anyone expected this to happen. You know, this is like second world war stuff, you know, and the fact that there's a foreign legion having to be made, you know, that, that to me says a lot that I feel like most veterans, as I say, feel exactly the same way. They may have different reasons, but they all feel as if it's their duty to come and do their part. I know I'm only one person, and I know we're not going to stop an invasion or change things, but it's up to the people like us to stand up for what's right, I think. And as long as there's always someone to stand up against evil, I think that's that's a good thing. You know, because it's not what good men, it's not that there's bad things happening, it's the fact that good men stand by and do nothing. Stephen, what, what did you make of his sort of motivations, his, his backstory? Was it what you expected? In some ways, yeah. I mean, he'd signed up to the military when he was 16, where he was, as he described himself, a boy soldier, so he could be deployed anywhere. And then two years later, he did his infantry training, and had his first deployment in Northern Ireland, working on demilitarization. And then he was in Baghdad for a while, six months, and then he did various other tours and left the military after seven years. And I think it's a sort of you know, not uncommon story of someone who has seen combat, spent a lot of time in the military, left without much in the way of skills and also without much in the way of support. So I think he was sort of a bit adrift. But his motivations for fighting seemed to me real. You know, this idea of thinking about his daughter, he seemed very, very motivated and very sincere. Many people in our audience will be thinking what, what I first thought when I saw this video. We've talked about people going to Ukraine to sort of join far-right militias. Stephen did ask Jack about that. This is what Jack said. I have heard that there's like ultranationalists, um, neo-Nazi 
groups and splinter groups are part of the Ukrainian military and certain like legions and stuff now. Um, I'm not too sure about like the finer details of it, but um, I have heard that within within Comprehend Theatre that there are groups specifically tasked because of that very reason, you know, and I'm not too sure whether they're like a proper like major fighting force or whether they're part of the Ukrainian army or if they're just a foreign legion like ourselves. But um, yeah, before I came over, I was actually accused of <laughs> being a part of that. And I, like, I'm the furthest thing from, I've had three family members killed during both world wars and stuff, you know, I'm, and furthest thing from a Nazi, you know, but I, as far as I'm concerned, as long as it doesn't bother me, I won't bother them type of thing, you know, but I understand people's reasons and why, but um, yeah, that's not, not my cup of tea, really. I don't care about their own personal preferences or what they believe in. Uh, as long as we're a cohesive unit and we all do our job and duty, I'm happily fine working alongside people like that. I've no, I've been beside worse, <laughs> you know. It's definitely an interesting answer. I suppose I wouldn't necessarily say, "Oh, I'm I'm the furthest thing I can be from a Nazi," because my, you know, my parents or did were they fight? Did they kill? I can't quite remember exactly the details there. In the Second World War, I mean, were you were you sort of 100 percent convinced that this guy wasn't actually going to join a far right militia, but was sort of leading you on? How 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 sure do you feel about that? Well, I guess I, what I mostly think is that he hadn't really thought very much about it and he didn't seem to know very much about the existence of a far-right element in the Ukrainian military. I really didn't get the sense that he was going with the intention to fight alongside Nazis. You know, there's another question about whether or not he's someone who might be open to some kind of radicalization, But, you know, it seemed clear to me that there was just one thing he was going to do, and that was to fight Russian invaders in Ukraine. And I think that comes across when he sort of, in a way, doesn't seem to really care that he might be fighting alongside these ultra-nationalists, so long as they're a cohesive unit. So he has a kind of military goal in mind rather than a political one, I think. Let's go to another clip. So this time sort of on the broader political context and in particular NATO. There's no point in us saying we're not at war, we're at war, whether we like to believe it or not. And the sooner NATO and the rest of the world realizes that, the better. Because, like, Putin, let's be honest, he's not going to stop. We haven't stopped him for Crimea, Georgia, or anything like What's to say, oh, Ukraine, here's Poland there now. Do you know, it's, he wants another Soviet Union. He wants an Iron Curtain again. And I think he's trying to build his legacy. I know Ukraine is no, not part of the NATO at the minute, but NATO stands for something. And this is probably one of the things it stands for, let's be honest. It's meant to protect its neighbours, it's meant to like provide security. And it's okay sanctioning and sanctioning, but like, you know, it doesn't really affect he doesn't care. He's got his stuff put away and hidden. He's not it's the it's the Russian people that are suffering. And like half of the armed their forces and stuff, you know, you've seen the material and the kept they're using. It's like Cold Warrior or some of the stuff, and it's I don't think he's realised he expected this the them they push him off flowers and walk over then a week. And I don't think even Putin realised it was gonna be like us. He's united the world. Speaking to sort of a couple other people, someone who was in the army, someone sort of who who knew about Northern Ireland, but also about the the struggle in in Kurdistan and some of the people who travelled over there. And the girl with sort of expertise in 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 Kurdistan was sort of suggesting there are sort of two types of people who who go out to fight, sort of well-meaning people looking for for meaning, who sort of see that injustice is being done. And they sort of, you know, want to contribute to it. They've been in the military before, that felt natural to them. They want to go back into that. And then there's sort of ideological people. And in that particular struggle, so Rajava, et cetera, the ideological people were of the left because it was, you know, it was seen around the world as a 
as an anarchist resistance, a, a kind of revolution. Whereas I think what she was expecting, and I think what lots of us are expecting, is that in, in this case, the people going over to Ukraine to fight will either be people who just sort of have seen an injustice that they want to fight and potentially have some experience in the military and you know want to go and use it. Or if they are ideological, it's more likely to be of the right, because as we talked about on Friday's show, for example, the Azov Battalion, etc. I suppose you think Jack fits into that, that former category, right? So not necessarily a particularly ideological person, but who's seen something that he doesn't agree with. Yeah, I think uh, rather than being ideological, I'd, I'd describe him as sort of idealistic, really. He, I think, had a sort of fairly polarised view of, you know, one side is good and one side is evil and he's on the side of good and is going to battle battle uh, evil. But I don't think it had any, I don't think it had any other ideology beneath that, not that I could detect anyway. But I think one thing that you you said in the beginning of that question was this idea of, you know, meaning. I think he was someone who had found that life had not felt particularly meaningful after leaving the military. And he had the skills and he had the, the knowledge and, you know, I guess maybe the courage to go and make some meaning for himself by fighting for Ukraine. So I think there's a sort of personal personal motivation as well as a kind of idealistic motivation. But yeah, I didn't detect anything more strongly ideological than that. And this is the last bit of the conversation we're going to show you. It's about Jack's approach to the possibility of dying at war. Although I don't want to, I don't want to die. That's the last thing I don't want to, but I have accepted it, you know. Um, there's a 50-50 chance that it probably won't come back. Um, but I feel as though if I don't go, someone else will. It probably isn't in the know, you know. And I think if I can go and make my, do my little part, that's, I'll be happy. But, yeah. You can't, you can't say these people aren't taking real risks. Um, Stephen, I know you're remaining in contact with this guy, so we'll, presumably we'll be getting potentially some updates about how how his experiences are when he actually crosses the border into Ukraine. Over the run up to the interview, I got to know him quite well, and you know, I, I liked him, and um, it was actually sort of, in a way, quite difficult saying goodbye after we'd done the interview, knowing that you know he might be dead in a couple of weeks. But yeah, we're still in touch. I know a fair number of operational details now from him that obviously I can't disclose. And hopefully we'll get some interesting updates from, from the battlefield. We will also be getting updates from, from other people Stephen met on, on his trip. So hopefully we'll have an, an interview with a, a Ukrainian refugee for you later in this, later in this week. So we're really looking forward to that. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. Thanks a lot, Michael. No problem. Let's go on to our next story. Russia has long been a dangerous place to protest, but two videos this weekend showed just how hard it's become. This is what happened when a woman held up a blank sign in Nizhny Novgorod. But not only can't you criticise the war or Putin, you can't even hold up a blank sign in a square. Really, really extreme. Another woman was arrested for holding a sign saying simply two words. So it said the words, two words. Doesn't matter what you're protesting, merely having a sign is enough to get bundled away by riot police. Her sign, as I say, just said two words. Um, and then after that, sort of, I mean, almost ridiculously, they accidentally arrest someone who was pro-Putin. So she was speaking to the journalist, will you also speak to pro-Putin people? And he said, yes, I will speak to pro-Putin people. And the police come along and arrest her. I've got 
you know, I, I don't know, potentially they would let her free after she says, no, actually I'm for Putin, I'm for the war. You should let me go out and share my ideas with the cameras because I'm saying what you want me to be saying. I don't know. I don't know what happened next. We should talk about like, why does this matter? Obviously, the most obvious thing it shows is that Putin is an authoritarian dictator and Russia has become you know, more a traditional definition of a dictatorship. This is somewhere where you cannot have any freedom of speech. Before it was a bit of a you know, managed democracy. Now it seems to be something more extreme. But I also think it suggests some potential dilemmas for the West. If sanctions are supposed to motivate people to protest, that kind of treatment makes it seem unlikely to work. And I've also seen a fair few people suggest that unless Russians are actively protesting the war, they themselves are personally implicated. And I think that's difficult to maintain once you see that anyone merely holding up a blank sign gets bundled away by riot police. And if we're saying we're going to cancel any single Russian who's not going out to protest every day, you know, you're asking actually quite a lot of them, given the political environment that they're, they're currently in. Let's move on now to another story about cops. In the early hours of Sunday morning, the £25 million mansion of Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska was squatted. This building is being occupied because it belongs to a man named Oleg Deripaska. Come, Russia's quite bad, I can't pronounce the name properly, but he's an oligarch who was sacked through. And it belongs to a guy named Oleg Deripaska, who was an oligarch who was sanctioned by the British government last week. He has direct ties to Putin and once referred to himself as Putin's favourite oligarch. He also is connected to an investment firm, EM Plus, uh, whose chairman had to resign because uh, he was a uh, quite senior Tory politician. Uh, so we are, we are squatting this building as a form of protest and solidarity with the Ukrainian people, with the Russian people who suffer under Putin and all people who suffer under war. And as the protesters said there, Deripaska has been sanctioned by the government for his close ties to Putin. Like many of Russia's oligarchs, he got rich by taking ownership of previously state-owned assets after the collapse of the Soviet Union, so essentially stealing from the Russian people. He ended up owning Russia's largest aluminium firms. In short, he's a bad guy who's been treated with a light touch as he's enjoyed the luxuries offered in London's West End. And in this case, he also got the support of the Metropolitan Police. They had a heavy-handed response to the protest. Loads of police vans rocked up to the squad. That was just hours after it had been occupied. It was a scene that raised eyebrows among anyone who's had to call the Metropolitan Police recently. Normally you'll wait an hour for them to turn up just to get a crime number. In this case, you've got tens of cars and vans all there just to protect this oligarch's mansion. And then we can see reams of riot police flooding in. This operation must have cost a lot of money. These things don't come cheap. Speaking from the balcony, as those riot police were going in, one of the protesters told the press association, all our group made peace with arrest because this was always one of the options. I'm ready to take the consequences for something I believe. Their plan had been to open up the mansion to refugees. And in a message to Russian oligarchs, the squatter said, you occupy Ukraine, we occupy you. So really well thought out protest. And the police, for some reason, treated this as an absolute priority. They had to get all of the cops down there in full riot gear. These people couldn't possibly be allowed to squat this building for more than six hours. Very strange. It, it does raise questions about their priorities when you see how they have dealt with, with, with other situations. I should add, I, I do sometimes find it a little bit crass when people sort of point to protesters being 
know, abused by police in Russia and saying this is actually what it's like in, in Britain. Because I do think, you know, the costs of protesting in Russia are much higher than the cost of protesting in Britain. And yes, that will be even the case after the terrible, I have to say it's terrible, but the policing crime bill, when that is implemented, it's still not going to make us, you know, a society where holding up a blank sign gets you arrested. So I do think we should be careful when we say, oh, that, that, that's what's going on in Russia, but it's the same here anyway. No, the costs of protesting in Russia are a lot higher than the costs are here. But also our police here have their, have their priorities massively wrong. Let's end this section of an interesting fact about Deripaska. Both George Osborne and Peter Mandelson have enjoyed hospitality on his very expensive yacht. And news of the contact sparked criticism because as European Union Trade Minister, Trade Commissioner, sorry, Mandelson had been responsible for the decision to cut aluminium tariffs from 6 to 3%, a decision that had benefited Deripaska personally. This is the new Labour set. This is what they were getting up to. And there was speculation on Twitter today, which I thought was very interesting, that one of the reasons the police may have been so keen to evict the squatters so quickly was because of what compromising documents they might have found in Deripaska's house. Now, I couldn't possibly comment on mere speculation. I just, you know, personally thought that was interesting as at least a, a possibility to raise. Nothing more than that. Next story. On Saturday, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia executed 81 men for crimes including terrorism and holding deviant beliefs. How will the British government respond? Well, Boris Johnson is expected to travel to Saudi Arabia this week to beg for more oil. He wants Saudi Arabia to up production to try and fill the gap left by Russian sanctions. Michael Gove defended the move on Sky. Well, we have to rely on oil from a number of countries, um, uh, many of whose human records, human rights records, we wouldn't, um, um, uh, in fact, we don't approve of. Um, every time a UK government minister is in Saudi Arabia, we raise human rights concerns alongside the other work that we do. I guess we arm the prize, sell arms to Saudi Arabia, what's a little oil? Well, uh, again, Saudi Arabia is a security partner of the United Kingdom. Um, I think that there are human rights concerns. We're clear about those, um, but we also recognise that uh, at a time when uh, the world is in a fragile situation, uh, that uh, diplomacy alongside um, uh, clarity on human rights is important. Every time we're in Saudi Arabia, we raise human rights concerns. Well, how seriously is that going to be taken when we're also begging to be able to pay them more cash for oil? Oh, please, please, can you behave better when it comes to human rights? Also, could you please sell us more oil because we want to transfer you even a greater number of millions of pounds every day so that you can transfer your biggest export to us? It doesn't add up for me. Sophie Ridge was also correct to bring up arms sales by the British to the Saudis, which have been used um, in the Saudis' murderous war in Yemen. Campaign against the arms trade estimate that sales worth over £20 billion have been made by the British to the Saudis since the start of the war in 2015. It's a case of criminal irresponsibility, which is a fact recognised by a UK court in 2019. Then, the Court of Appeal judged that UK had not done sufficient checks as to how the weapons they sold to the Saudis would be used. But a year later, the UK restarted weapons sales, saying that where there had been historic violations of international law, they were merely isolated incidents. This is part of a Newsnight report from after that government decision was made. 
another victim of yet another tragedy. Another home destroyed. A father's plea to the world. His children, the latest victims of this vicious war. Some of the pictures he sent us, too distressing for us to show. It's unknown if in this incident it was a British-made bomb that destroyed their home. But Britain has played a key role in supporting Saudi Arabia in this war. Organizations on the ground like Muatana, founded by Radhi al-Mutwakil, have been documenting the violations committed by all sides in Yemen. She says there is a pattern and that the UK's legacy of upholding human rights isn't as robust as it may believe. The language was very weird because they say it's isolated incidents and I don't know how they have decided it is isolated incidents. The UK, they do, they do have all the information that helps them to know that uh, the Saudi Emirati airstrikes are violating the international humanitarian law. And it is a pattern. It's not an isolated incident. Many people in Yemen, they don't know UK and US except through the remnants of weapons, through the weapons that destroys this, their homes and their farms and killed their families. They only know Britain and America through the bombs that hit them and their families. Really, really just awful. Like, beggars believe that this isn't a bigger story that we hear about all the time. Over 10,000 civilians have been killed in Saudi-led airstrikes since the start of the war. But just as damaging has been the targeting of civilian infrastructure, including ports, which has led to chronic famines. By 2019, Associated Press reported that 91,000 people had been killed in the war on Yemen. And more than a dozen UN agencies and international aid groups said on Monday that 161,000 people in the war-torn country were likely to experience famine over the second half of this year. So Britain's arms sales to Saudi Arabia is the most disgraceful long-running policy of this government, to my mind. It's causing more damage, more deaths than any other one. Yet it doesn't get talked about very much because, as Michael Gove said in that clip, and this is really important, she was like, well, what about selling all of these weapons to Saudi Arabia, which they're using to bomb Yemen? He said, oh, but these are, our, these are security partners. When Russia bombs civilians and bombs civilian infrastructure, that's a war crime and that's terrible and we have to sanction them, which we should, by the way. But we do all of that because they're not a security partner. Saudi Arabia does all of that. And suddenly, oh, actually, when our security partner bombs hospitals and bombs civilian infrastructure and causes famines, that's not really a war crime. That's our security partner doing it. It's completely different. There is, there is no ethical justification for this whatsoever of treating these two things things differently, other than Saudi Arabia happens to share intelligence with us, you know? It's, well, and, by the way, transfer loads of money for the weapons we sell them and then sell us oil. So it's, it's, it's a brute, self-interested policy from, from this government, which means that in this situation, we turn a complete blind eye to the fact that civilians are being targeted with British-made bombs. But it's not just the bombs, by the way. What's super key when it comes to the Yemen war and what experts like David Waring, who we've had on the show, will talk about is what's really key here is not just the transfer of the weapons to Saudi Arabia, because obviously, you know, they've probably got enough already to continue this war. It's the fact that British arms companies still go and service that equipment. If Britain refused, if Britain stopped servicing that equipment, then he says, and lots of experts say, this war could end tomorrow, right? Because it is 
an ongoing relationship which Britain and BAE has with the Saudis, which allows them to continue this war. So when you think about how far the British government have come to sanctioning the Russians, you know, we've talked about on previous shows, there are ordinary Russians who are struggling to get medicine because of how extreme the sanctions have been. And as I say, we, I support sanctions on Russia. I think potentially they should be a little bit more targeted. We should be a bit more strategic, giving Putin an off-ramp, etc. But I think some sanctions are justified. But, you know, it's a blunt tool when it comes to Russia. But when it comes to Saudi Arabia, literally we could stop the war tomorrow and all we'd need to do is one policy change which wouldn't negatively affect any Saudis whatsoever. We wouldn't have to make any innocent people go hungry or miss out on any doses of medicine. We'd literally just need to stop sending over people who work at weapons firms, people who work for BAE, to go and service the planes which are killing innocent civilians. But we don't do that because, as Michael Gove said, these are security partners. One final point on the oil aspect of this, that's what Boris Johnson is is doing this week. He's going to be begging a brutal dictatorship to up their production of oil. This week, it doesn't seem like the meeting's going to be about weapons. And the response to this, I imagine, you know, most of you watching are thinking it as well. Why don't, instead of filling the gap that sanctioning Russian oil has given the world, why don't we perhaps speed up, accelerate the transition to renewables? That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. This would be this would solve two problems in one stone. It would give us more geopolitical independence. It would mean we wouldn't have to fund human rights abusing dictatorships. And it would solve that other major problem we have, climate change. And it's that context which perhaps makes it surprising what the right-wing press have been focused on this week. If you type into Google The Telegraph and Net Zero... There are free results in the past week. You can see them. Questions over net zero as Putin sparks change in Britain's policy or whatever. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine shows the shallowness of net zero. And then very, very bizarrely, make younger, make the younger generation pay the net zero bill, says Pierre. That, is, that third article is the most stupid idea I've ever heard. Younger people, we're already paying very high marginal tax rates because of things like student loans. We can't afford houses. And now we have to pay for solving climate change, which we didn't create in the first place. Anyway, each one of those headlines was more disgraceful than the next. Let's do the same thing with GB News. If you Google GB News and Net Zero, you get Net Zero, not politically feasible. Expert tells GB News. You also have Dan Wooten, very much not an expert on this issue, blasting Net Zero as UK should not rely on nefarious powers. What about the power of the sun, Dan? What's so nefarious about the sun or the wind? It's so ridiculous. It's, it's, it's almost difficult to argue against because I, I just don't think they're thinking straight. And then we've got Nigel Farage, whose new plan to sort of maintain his political relevance is to have a referendum on net zero, even though it was in all the, all the parties' manifestos at the last general election. This is what he wants to be the new d- dividing line. The right are desperate to polarize the climate change issue because at this moment in this country, yes, we will often say on this show that the government aren't doing enough about this. They're definitely not doing enough to rein in big fossil fuel polluters, we're still subsidizing them to the tune of tens of millions of pounds. But what thankfully we don't have in this country is it's not actually that polarized. It's not particularly politicized. It's not like in the United States where you have the Republicans saying climate change doesn't exist. And then you have the Democrats saying it does. And then you have all of these, you know, it becomes this intensely polarized topic. In this country, at least there seems to be, you know, some degree of consensus, both among political elites and among the general public that we need to deal with climate change. Nigel Farage, I suppose in a similar way to which to, to how he did with the EU, he wants to change that. He should not be allowed to do that. But it's, it's channels like GB News, it's newspapers like The Telegraph who are committed to making this happen because they have some bizarre death wish. They want 
the young to pay more taxes and then us all to die. Not a future I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Um, one more for you. This is the Spectator's leader this week, obviously Boris Johnson's old paper. It's time to drop the net zero agenda. And obviously that's not by a particular author. That's the take of the spectator. Now is the time to drop the net zero agenda. Let's pay billions more to dictators around the world. Oil prices are rocketing. It's more obvious than ever that the risks, you know, the risks we face by sort of relying on oil imports from unsavory regimes. And now is the time when there's a broad political consensus that what we need to do is invest in green energy so that we can have you know, geopolitical independence as well as solving climate change. The Spectator, they've got together, you know, this is how leaders are written. You get together everyone that's senior who works at The Spectator. They say, well, what's going to be our big priority this week? What's the message we have to send to the public? Um, let's quit net zero. Let's start burning more coal. Let's start burning more oil because that will give us independence from Vladimir Putin. Really, really hard to make this argument stack up. Either they want us to be more dependent on Putin and Saudi Arabia than we already are, or, as I say, they have this strange death wish. They want young people to pay more taxes, and then they want us all to die in extreme weather. These are people that control such a large proportion of our media landscape. It's, it's why... I try, to rem I try to remain a fairly positive person, but these, these do make me despair. Next story. Boris Johnson is under fire for giving a wealthy Russian a seat in Britain's House of Lords against the advice of the security services. Evgeny Lebedev is the son of Alexander Lebedev, a former KGB agent turned billionaire oligarch. Lebedev Sr. got rich as owner of Russia's National Reserve Bank, which held big stakes in Gazprom, the state oil giant Aeroflot, the Russian airline, and a military jet manufacturer. In 2009, Alexander bought the Evening Standard and the Independent before returning to Russia and handing over control to his son, Evgeny. It was as a de facto owner of the Evening Standard that Evgeny developed a close relationship with Boris Johnson, then London mayor. The Sunday Times have revealed it was a relationship that flourished despite serious concerns from the security service. For example, they report that in 2013, the head of MI6 was so concerned about Lebedev seeking to gain influence in Britain that he refused to meet him for lunch. The paper reports that meetings between MI6 bosses and newspaper editors and proprietors are reasonably common. They give a background briefing to these guys. Potentially a problematic relationship, but a normal one. The MI6 boss decided he wasn't going to do that in this situation because of this guy's sort of connections to, or potential connections to the Kremlin. The Sunday Times also revealed the controversy caused in Whitehall when Boris Johnson nominated Lebedev for a peerage. Due to security concerns, Britain's security services opposed the move, but were overruled by Johnson. They write, according to a source, Johnson was demanding that the security service provide a specific reason, in other words, a smoking gun, demonstrating why his good friend Lebedev was not a suitable figure to sit in the Lords. Civil servants were stunned by this move. They said it was unprecedented for a prime minister to question such an assessment and that the system of vetting only worked if politicians heeded the advice of the security services. They also said Johnson's response mistook the nature of such intelligence, which is based on the risk a person might pose more than one past deed or event. In any case, the fundamental assessment did not change, but if intelligence officials are thought to have told Johnson there was not one specific reason to block him, that was enough for Johnson to renominate Lebedev, telling Holax, that was someone in the 
House of Lords Commission, that the previous issue had been resolved. This is what's caused, you know, caused a lot of outrage this weekend. I'm going to be controversial here. I think the relationship between Boris Johnson and Lebedev is, is incredibly unsavory. But I'm not sure that quote I just read to you and this story involving MI6 actually makes Boris Johnson look that bad. And the reason I'm going to say this is because I value consistency. I think consistency is, is important in politics. And I can bet that for good reason, if Jeremy Corbyn was prime minister, you know, and Seamus Milne was his director of strategy, then if they wanted to put someone in the House of Lords and MI6 said, oh, no, no, we've got concerns about this particular person, they would be asking for evidence, right? I don't think that asking your security services for evidence of of what they're basing their advice on is is that bad a thing. You know, I don't think he comes across that badly in that particular part of the story, which again is is one of the parts that sort of liberals, you know, especially Remainers, are getting very het up about because these are people who you have a lot of faith in the MI6, and they have a lot of you know, concern that the, the national interest of this country could be being usurped by outsiders, by the Russians, who are sort of the big... Obviously, I think the Russians are the bogeyman when it comes to the war in Ukraine. I don't necessarily think they are when it comes to Trump, when it comes to Brexit, etc. But there is a culture among liberals and centrists where they say like, oh, it's the, it's the, the FBI, the MI6, who we have to really value and defend against these nefarious outsiders and populists, I don't really buy into that narrative. I will go on to say what narrative I do buy into. First of all, though, Michael Gove was asked on Sky whether Boris Johnson has, at the very least, behaved foolishly in getting so close to Lebedev. Well, I don't think so. Um, uh, I've met um, Lord Lebedev, as the Prime Minister has. Um, At no point did anyone ever say to me that it would be inappropriate uh, to meet him and to um, to talk to him, and so I think none of those concerns were passed on. Even though in 2013, uh, it, the Sunday Times believed uh, that they were passed on to people at least around Boris Johnson. Nobody has ever said to me, and right. um, uh, uh, I've met Mr. Le- Mr. Lord Lebedeva, as he now is, in public, um, and nobody has ever suggested to me that that was wrong. There's something else as well I'd want to say. So you're happy um, to call him Lord Lebedev then? Yes. Well, uh, the, the, one of the other things I should say is that. Um, uh, Lord Lebedev has been clear through the pages of the Evening Standard, the newspaper of which he is proprietor, that he wholeheartedly disapproves of this conflict. Uh, he's been critical of Vladimir Putin's actions. I think one of the things that Vladimir Putin would like us to do is to uh, have a uh, an approach in the UK where we said that everyone of Russian ancestry um, was somehow... That's not what we're saying, is it? This is somebody who the security services have intervened over the, the peerage, the head of MI6 refused to meet. Oh, quite. And, this is uh, not just some like normal Russian person who lives on your street, is it? Uh, uh, no, uh, but it's also the case that, uh, again, um, I think it's um, appropriate to recognise that what um, uh, Putin wants to do is, is to uh, divide us in this way. Uh, again, the, the Sunday Times are reporting things today. They're news to me. Um, but of course, I take account fully of the integrity of their reporting. Some of what Michael Gove said there, I think, is is reasonable. Lebedev has spoken out against the war. He's not egging on the war in Ukraine. But the real problem here for me, as I say, and what, what should probably have been pushed more by that host, why is it so easy to get a seat at the table of Britain's establishment so long as you have mountains of cash, whichever country you're from? From the Sunday Times piece, it does make it all look quite easy if you can afford it. They write that from 2012, Johnson started travelling to Palazzo Terranova, the Lebedev's villa nestling in the hills of Umbria, and Castello di Santa Eurasia, their nearby castle, 
often flying commercially or on private jets paid for by the Russian. According to previous guests, such parties are not easily forgotten. Vodka and caviar are plentiful. Dinner is followed by music and dancing. Stephen Fry, Tony Blair, and yes, again, Peter Mandelson have been seen at, seen at some events. He's just always turning up, isn't he? They follow a similar pattern. Pre-dinner drinks would start quite late, around 9pm, said one frequent attendee. Dinner is 10 p.m. Late by our standards. There is music and dancing afterwards. We're talking Elton John and the Pet Shop Boys, not clubbing. That's a shame. I like the Pet Shop Boys. There was very fine alcohol. There was vodka if you want it. The wine was very good. Evgeny was a very generous host. His father was often there. It was a mix of politicians and celebrities. Lots of actors. And they go on. Johnson became so close to Lebedev that he visited the castle in Perugia every October for five successive years from 2012 to 2016. He would sometimes even bring his wife. All Johnson's expenses were covered by Lebedev, including his transport to and from the airport. Twice Johnson used the chauffeur-driven vehicle of the Evening Standards, then editor Sarah Sands. Previously undisclosed documents show he accepted £7,150 worth of flights, cars and accommodation from Lebedev between 2013 and 2015, justifying them in hand-signed expensive returns as networking events. Networking events is not good. Well, at this point in time, the Mayor of London and then the Foreign Secretary going for networking events. That's the kind of thing that should be explained. Who are you networking with and why? Something I just noticed in that that didn't struck me before. He would sometimes even bring his wife. Now, I, would kind of, I wouldn't think that was worth mentioning. I would normally think that to this kind of social occasion, this party, you would bring your wife. But this is obviously something of note when it comes to Boris Johnson. Maybe he often preferred to travel alone for reasons I won't discuss. As I say, I don't really care where oligarchs come from. My issue here, though, is, is if they are funding the lavish holidays of the London mayor while owning London's biggest paper... I think we have a conflict of interest here. And Boris Johnson going on to give Lebedev a peerage only seems to confirm that. Does Lebedev being the son of a KGB agent also, does that make this more serious than it otherwise would be? Potentially, the most concrete allegation in the Sunday Times is that according to Italian intelligence reports, Lebedev Sr. has been involved in attempts by Gazprom and its largest shareholder, the Kremlin, to influence the energy politics of foreign governments. But a newspaper-owning oligarch whining and dining politicians and then demanding they change their energy, energy policies doesn't strike me as a particularly Russian thing to do. Indeed, it might seem ironic that this story about Johnson and Lebedev is in a newspaper owned by the ultimate media baron, Rupert Murdoch. Now, I wonder if these journalists would have been allowed to publish a similar story about the oligarch who runs their newspapers Interestingly, on that topic, both The Independent and The Evening Standard did write up stories about their owners. That's about Lebedev. The story in The Independent, MI6 warned PM about Russian oligarch friend Evgeny Lebedev. And we've got another story in The Evening Standard. MI6 warned PM about Russian oligarch friend Evgeny Lebedev two years ago. But before you celebrate press freedom and how oligarchs owning our newspapers doesn't stop them reporting on issues that might affect those oligarchs, both of those articles were taken down. So the standard would take that article down and replace it with this a statement from the proprietor in response to media speculation. You could have made that statement without deleting the initial story, by the way. Just a suggestion. The independent article would also be deleted. Clicking on the original link takes you to this. 
sorry, we can't find that page. The address could have been entered incorrectly or the page could have gone missing because our owner, our billionaire Russian oligarch owner, didn't like that we were writing negative stories about him. So sorry, that's gone into the the effort that is now ancient history. You cannot read about this story on the independent website. Just as I imagine you can't read particularly critical stories about Rupert Murdoch in the Sunday Times or The Sun. This, this is the nature of Britain's free press. This is what we celebrate when we say, ah, oh, the difference between us and Russia. We have a free press. We can say what we want. Yes, as I've said already on this show, we do have a lot more freedom of speech than they have in Russia. But if we really had a commitment to the democratic control of information, to being able to write whatever you want about whoever you want, then potentially we shouldn't have all of our biggest media outlets owned by oligarchs with some very specific vested interests, as we've seen here. Evgeny Lebedev doesn't surprise me that his father would be lobbying on behalf of Gazprom because he managed to take over the bank that has huge shares in it. This isn't necessarily a conspiracy. This is just people looking out for their interests. They recognize that it's very good value to take Boris Johnson out to these fancy hotels and castles because there's going to be an economic return for them. And that's why I don't really like the sort of the narrative that this is all about, you know, treason, essentially. This is about the Russians subverting our democracy. No, this is about our democracy being pretty corrupt from the outset. No one says about Rupert Murdoch, oh, this is Australians corrupting our democracy. No, this is just Rupert Murdoch, a random rich guy with reactionary politics. And I think that is the case in so many of these situations. The issue isn't where they're from. The issue is that they can buy access to the people at the top of our politics. And there is still not enough scrutiny on that. And, and, and partly one of the reasons there isn't enough scrutiny on that is because we see this as exceptional. Michael Gove can say, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be demonizing Russians because that's what Putin wants. I mean, the question after that should be, well, wherever the person is from, should the prime minister, or his foreign secretary at the time, be going every year to a castle owned by this guy who, because of his wealth, clearly has vested interests that he would like the government to act on? Is this, is this appropriate? Is it appropriate to take all of this hospitality, fancy wine, fancy food, and just put it in your expenses as networking? Is that appropriate? I don't think it's appropriate. You can make up your own mind. That doesn't seem like the sign of a healthy democracy to me. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday from 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.